Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and of course, whoever. And this is episode, I guess I'll call it 306. I've released a handful of episodes since 305, but they're kind of these little special episodes. And you guys probably know by now, I don't bother numbering those ones. So it's Turkey Day, uh, Turkey Day 2018. For some reason, I thought I had a couple more days before I had to start recording. Uh, A little uh, behind-the-scenes info. I usually like to actually start recording the episode I'm working on the Thursday of that week. And all of a sudden, I was like, holy crap, uh, Thanksgiving's a Thursday, as it always is. (laughs) So uh, here I am. I think I had a couple of brief uh, food comas. Um, You guys probably know that I've been on a diet. I lost a lot of weight. Uh, I'm... I'm almost 5'11". I'm down to 181 pounds. Uh, I'm kind of afraid of what I'm going to see on the scale tomorrow. Had two helpings of turkey and stuffing, an oversized slice of chocolate pie, a little Debbie uh, tree cake. <laughs> uh, let's see, some gingerbread men cookies. <laughs> yes, I do have the palate or the, you know, the appetite of a, of a 14-year-old. Um, I'm currently working on an Angry Orchard Cider. Yeah, and so I did actually take a couple of naps throughout the day, and I'm not necessarily feeling my sharpest right now, but this is going to be one of those episodes that's going to call for all the brain power that I can muster. So let's see if I can jumpstart the old noggin. But before we start, I'd like to give a quick shout out to Eric Shulka, or Shulky maybe. Uh, I apologize if I'm butchering your name. Looks like a, uh, a fine German uh, surname. Maybe it's just Shulk. I don't know. Or Shulky, Shulka. Uh, my apologies once again. Thank you very much for liking the Facebook page. If anyone else feels like liking the Facebook page, please do. Uh, we're at 188 now. Wouldn't mind getting up to a nice round, you know, 200. And you guys know how much I like to try to remain intellectually honest. So let's not care ourselves. Once we get to 200, I'll keep on pushing and nagging and guilting you guys for more and more Facebook likes to feed my fragile atheistic ego. And also, before we get started, I was thinking about having just a little bit of fun with some negative feedback. I don't even know if this necessarily constitutes uh, negative feedback, It's kind of funny, you know, this first one. It was a response to my Baphomet documentary, which actually seems to be doing pretty well on YouTube. Someone left the strangely terse comment, looks like a liberal. And so I'm like, here's this... I think jokingly, I actually tweeted about it. I said, how is this a response to a 20-minute occult documentary? (laughs) I don't think I ever really touch on politics or anything in that one. Um... It was meant to just be one of those kind of serious, scholarly little documentary episodes. And someone replied, looks like a liberal. So I'm like, what looks like a liberal? Baphomet? <laughs> the sabbatic goat? And that's probably what it was. It was probably some conservative dude who wasn't really taking the documentary seriously and just saw this weird, hairy, goat-looking thing and thought it would give him a chance to uh, take a shot at at lefties or something. Is it because Baphomet's not wearing a shirt? Hashtag free the nipple. Um, 
And that reminds me, and this is so weird that this is probably like the third week in a row or something where I, I'm talking about Baphomet yet again. And I saw that the Satanic Temple just tweeted today that uh, I think it was the link to a Patheos article that supposedly the Satanic Temple and Netflix have actually come to a, a amicable agreement or whatever regarding this whole potential lawsuit situation where the Satanic Temple had taken offense at Netflix's portrayal of Baphomet in their original series, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. And it wasn't just the portrayal of Baphomet in general, but it was that Netflix had pretty much lifted the Satanic Temple's unique stylistic take on Baphomet. Uh, Baphomet, as I explain uh, in that documentary and also in a couple other recent episodes, I think, is an occult symbol that's been around since the, since the uh, 19th century. But the uh, Satanic Temple does have their own unique take on it, including the addition of the two kids looking up at the Baphomet figure, uh, etc. Yeah, so here's the title from that Patheos article. The Satanic Temple amicably settles lawsuit against Warner Brothers and Netflix. And if I'm not mistaken, I think uh, Netflix agreed to add a mention in the credits or something like that uh, regarding the Satanic Temple in episodes that have already aired that make reference to or show Baphomet. And as I was joking in the last episode, it's not that they really uh, ever really reference Baphomet on the show. It's more that this statue is just this kind of centerpiece or backdrop where the, uh, the characters meet. Okay, so here's what the article says verbatim. The Satanic Temple is pleased to announce that the lawsuit it recently filed against Warner Brothers and Netflix has been amicably settled. The unique elements of the Satanic Temple's Baphomet statue have been acknowledged in the credits of episodes which have already been filmed. The remaining terms of the settlement are subject to a confidentiality agreement. But it's funny, as a result of researching that Baphomet documentary I did, and also trying to do my due diligence while covering what was that impending lawsuit. I feel like I've become something of a Baphomet expert, or I've become all too acquainted with the, uh, the details and characteristics of Eliphas Levy's Baphomet, a.k.a. Sabbatic Goat Drawing. And a big difference I picked up on is that the Satanic Temple's take on Baphomet, which I do believe was directly lifted by Netflix, uh, both those takes on Baphomet portray him or it as having a male chest, but Eliphas Levy's Sabbatic Goat has female breasts, and that's because his intention was to have the Sabbatic Goat symbolize this kind of unity or balance between binary opposites, including male and female. It was intentionally meant to be a kind of androgynous or hermaphroditic figure. And it got me wondering, I wonder whose decision that was. I wonder if it was Lucian Greaves who decided to give the Satanic Temple's Baphomet a, a male upper body. Maybe I'm reading too much into this. 
But I know the Satanic Temple is very pro-LGBT rights. I would even, I would call it kind of a secular humanist organization. There's even that image, you know, they have their own stylized take on the sigil of Baphomet, the goat's head in a uh, pentagram that is colored, you know, with the rainbow flag. And so I thought it was kind of weird that they would strip the female elements from Baphomet. Because I think um, you think they'd be more sensitive to portraying this kind of pro-gender equality type of image or something. Um, I know from, from researching that documentary episode that not only does Baphomet have female breasts, but one of the arms is meant to be female and the other arm is meant to be male. And if you really look at Eliphas Levy's drawing, you can actually see that one of the arms is more, a little more slender than the other. And if you look at the Satanic Temple's Baphomet and, you know, once again, lifted from the Satanic Temple, the depiction of Baphomet on the Netflix show, you can see that it has kind of a powerful male upper body with kind of muscular, veiny arms. Um, and I, I wonder why that decision was made. Did they just think it would look cooler? Or I wonder if it had something to do with the fact that they knew this thing was going to be at the center of these um, separation of church and state issue battles. And maybe they thought these naked breasts hanging off the statue would make it even harder to um, get people to agree to allowing it to be displayed or whatever, you know, uh, state capitals, etc., but, I mean, hey, if that's the case, I mean, hey, it's uh, the nude body has been a fixture of art for centuries, if not millennia, you know, the, the naked female form, not that Baphomet is completely female. But, yeah, I, I'm probably overanalyzing this or, or reading too much into it, but I wonder why uh, they stripped away Baphomet's uh, <laughs> female assets. Hashtag give Baphomet his boobies back. But to come full circle, regarding that comment about Baphomet uh, looking like a liberal, I guess that's what the person meant, um, someone on Twitter who goes by the name Great Tholomew P. Expectations, uh, I think I used to talk to them, I think, a lot on, on Twitter. Um, or I think that they may be a listener of the podcast, but we just haven't talked for a while. Uh, my apologies if we form some kind of bond and I'm forgetting it. But I'm, I am fond of them and they do reach out on Twitter here and there. Um, they said, because the person is, or excuse me, because this person either is one of the everyone I don't like is secretly one big gang working for Hillary Clinton online conservatives, or they're pretending to be one to troll you for humor. And I thought that was very insightful. And uh, of course, that's pretty much hit the nail on the head. It's either someone who is caught in this my team versus your team, liberal versus conservative mindset, or they're just trolling for shits and giggles. Or the two aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. Of course, there can be some overlap there. Um, I don't know why I gave so much time to that, to that, uh, particular comment um i just thought it was it was strangely amusing 
That goat with its titties looks like a goddamn liberal to me. Cue the spittoon sound. <laughs> okay, but, I mean, what is this, the week in Baphomet now? Uh, what was the other piece of negative uh, feedback? I don't even know if that was, ne- I don't even think that was necessarily aimed at me. I think that was just some kind of weird little trolling thing. But I thought I'd lump it together with some other negative feedback. Okay, I found the other uh, negative comment I was thinking of. And so this is from someone named, or they go by the name, Anthony Woodhouse. And this was a comment on my video, Fill in the Morning, Episode 1, Northern Exposure, Chris in the Morning Tribute. Okay, so I haven't talked about Northern Exposure on the show in a while, but I'm a huge fan of that old TV show. On the one hand, you know, just on a, a surface level, it's fun and quirky and it's got colorful characters. But it's also, I think, a very philosophical show that gets you thinking. It has a lot of intellectual depth to it. And yet at the same time, uh, it's also a show with a lot of heart. And that despite its intellectual slash philosophical nature, it's not pretentious. I think it's kind of like accessible to everyone. Uh, I I just thought it was such a, a great show. And I used to, and I, I have this book called Chris in the Morning, and it's just excerpts from the segments of the show where they'd have the character Chris Stevens, portrayed by uh, John Corbett, I think it is, um, just kind of waxing philosophical into the mic. He was the local kind of DJ or whatever, you know, worked at the local radio station. And I just thought it was so cool that that they have this book with all those little philosophical nuggets or musings in it, you know? So sometimes uh, I used to just flip open the book and I'd read from it. And I know I'm not as charismatic as Chris in the Morning and or John Corbett, who portrayed him. Um, I know I don't have the same charming twang. He has. I know I, I, you know, I know what my own voice sounds like. I'm a very self-critical person. And I'm also someone that listen, I've been podcasting for years now. And I listen back to every episode for quality control. Believe me, I know what my voice sounds like. No one can beat on me for my voice as much as I beat on myself. Um, it's kind of ironic because my two favorite things, two of my favorite, very favorite things to do in this world are podcasting and singing. Both things that require you, your voice, obviously. And yet, um, I finally gave in and I let my doctor prescribe uh, some inhaled steroids for me. Because I've had asthma since early childhood. It went undiagnosed when I was a kid. And... I was laid up and sick a lot with undiagnosed and serious asthma and allergies. But I'm at the point, you know, like my asthma isn't life-threatening where I don't have to worry about trips to the emergency room or whatever. But if it's not treated, I end up, you know, feeling tired and run down. I get this kind of ongoing or persistent tightness and discomfort in the chest. And uh, it's like, I can still, you know, I do a very physically demanding job. I can still work a full day of construction, even if I wasn't on asthma medicine. But it would just add to my misery. I'd feel even more run down. Uh, I'd feel, like a, like I said, like a, 
a ongoing tightness in the chest or whatever, uh, and just an overall lack of quality uh, regarding my breathing or whatever. So I finally gave in, uh, kind of like an invasion of the body snatchers. I, I, I finally couldn't fight anymore, and I just laid down and d decided to become a pod person. But, uh, but you know... Um, because for a while I was holding out, I was taking like older school asthma drugs, but ones that they don't think are as safe and ones that are becoming more and more difficult to procure. Um, and so the standard now it, it, for asthma, the, for the treatment of asthma, is to prescribe inhaled steroids. But unfortunately, these steroids, um, you know, the, the thinking is that they come in, it can be the steroid itself, the cortisone-based steroid itself, corticosteroids, um, or it, it's, it's theorized it might also be the propellant, but they come in touch with your voice box and they can cause irritation, they can supposedly cause a weakening of the vocal muscles, the folds or whatever, and it can... Um, really affect the quality of your voice. So not only do I have a naturally low droning, semi-gravelly voice, but now I'm on these steroids too that are notorious for messing with people's voices. Um, and there it is. But, you know, and uh, so let me go to the video. Yeah. So he says... I'm sorry, but your voice has absolutely no cadence at all and doesn't do justice to the written dialogue. And I don't know if it's him in his profile picture, but it's kind of this artsy black and white photo of someone with intentionally uh, messy hair stretching out their palm to the camera. Uh, <laughs> and I replied... I was only reading it because I'm a big fan of the show. Wasn't going for an acting job. I have a low droning voice. It is what it is, you know. And then um, he replied, oh, I ha now I feel bad. Now I feel like an asshole, okay? Because I didn't read this beforehand. And I thought it was going, I was going to wait to read his response on the show. And I figured it was, was going to be belligerent or combative. But he says, understood, man. Love the show, too. Always grateful for any Chris uploads. Thanks. And so I'll give him a thumbs up and a, and a little heart right now. I didn't expect that. That's, uh, I don't use this word often, but that was sweet. That was nice. That was nice. You know, usually people are tearing each other apart on YouTube. It, it's nice when you can actually kind of bury the hatchet with someone. And, uh, you know end things amicably or come to some sort of civil understanding. I don't even necessarily want to say end things because maybe this is the beginning of an online friendship. Who knows? But there you have it. But yeah, uh, it's kind of a sore spot for me because the things I love to do the most in life are things you need your voice for. And so, and I'm very well aware of my, uh, my vocal failings or idiosyncrasies, or idiosyncrasies, uh, yeah, I, I, I can think and talk tonight, idiosyncrasies, yay, yay for me, maybe I'll ins insert that, uh, that loop of the kids cheering, <laughs> little wise asses, <laughs> um, so let me go back to YouTube for a moment, I'm actually going to reply to him right now. And so I said, actually, if YouTube would allow it, I would just upload actual clips of Chris in the morning. 
but NX clips don't seem to last very long. I think NBC Universal has a very aggressive copyright policy. I think it's NBC Universal behind uh, Northern Exposure. And so we're 20 minutes in. I can't believe it's taken me this long to get to the first story. But as I mentioned last week, one of the things I wanted to talk about was a debate Peter Singer had with Andy Bannister, a theist, on Justin Briarley's uh, unbelievable podcast. And a lot of you listening are probably already aware who Peter Singer is. He's a, uh, I guess what you call him, an ethicist, a moral philosopher. He's no stranger to controversy. He's very pro-animal rights, which I think is a very good thing. Um, but he, he also has some controversial stances regarding things like euthanasia for infants with, you know, very severe birth defects or ailments or something like that. Um, and so his critics or opponents will sometimes try to twist his his takes on, on controversial topics like that and say that this is a guy who cares more about animals than he does human children, etc., etc. And they do actually talk about that during the course of this debate or, or conversation that took place on Justin Briarley's podcast. So if you want to hear them talk about that, you know, you can listen to the, uh, the podcast in its entirety, that particular episode in its entirety. But the clip that I wanted to comment on actually has to do with them debating over theodicy, you know, or kind of a fancy word for the, the problem of evil. And the problem of evil is probably one of those atheism 101 things, you know, it's one of those basic reasons why people tend to doubt the existence of God. Uh, but it's something I haven't thought about or wrestled with for quite some time, but I used to back in the day. And for some reason, it just kind of piqued my interest. So I think I'll play the clip and, th and then just jump in and comment here and there. One sort of metaphysical object, as it were, which is, which is God. And those things are grounded in the mind of, of God. Not least that's helpful because moral commandments do follow, but moral duties do follow between people. And so rather than thou shalt not murder, floating around abstractly out in the void, doing nothing until human beings have evolved to such a point that suddenly it applies to them in the same way as the law of gravity applies to them, actually we have a divine person and duties and so forth follow between persons. And I think there's something around that that intrigues me. Why does that not follow for you, that, that these duties and moral values should be grounded in something, I suppose, beyond ourselves in, in the form of God, ultimately? Well, to answer that, we would have to get back to questions about whether there are reasons for us to believe that God exists. And especially as we're talking about morality and the claim that morality is grounded in the existence of, of God or the will of God, I do think you have to look at the world around you and you have to say there is an immense amount of suffering that goes on which I don't believe an all-powerful, omniscient and good, morally good being would permit um, because this is not simply suffering that occurs to those who do bad things. It's not even if you were to believe what I think is a repellent doctrine of original sin that all humans have sinned because... Uh, Adam and Eve sinned and therefore it's okay for us to be punished because even if you accept that um, non-human animals not being descended from Adam would not have original sin 
and yet it's clear that they suffer, and not only at the hands of humans, they suffer because I come from Australia, you know, there's seasonal droughts um, out there in the arid centre of Australia. There are droughts and many kangaroos and other animals will slowly die of thirst, a miserable death. I cannot for the life of me see why a good God would permit that. So, so, so really. All right. So I just want to stop to say that I am completely simpatico with Peter Singer there. Uh, I think his sentiments were beautifully and concisely put. And maybe that's why uh, I want to play this clip on the show. Um, it mirrors my own beliefs. And I also want to pause to say, before I dig in here, you know, I want to kind of offer the caveat that I think when people start, you know, when people on our side of the argument, non-believers, whatever, start talking about the problem of evil, they can kind of run the risk of sounding whiny or like uh, the glass is half empty kind of people. So I'm not by any stretch of the imagination trying to say that life absolutely sucks, it's it's horrible, uh, it's nothing but a veil of tears, you know what I mean? Um, I think that there is a lot of wonder and beauty in life and a lot of joy to be had. But at the same time, you shouldn't sugarcoat things too much. Life is a mixture of good and bad, and there is a lot of suffering in the world. Um... Yeah, just a lot of horror, suffering, iniquity, and it's hard to reconcile all that with the idea of a good God, especially a personal, self-aware creator God, like uh, the Yahweh of the Bible or something like that. I mean, something vague or pantheistic, something yeah, like uh, The Force in Star Wars, then you can say, yeah, it's not really self-aware. It, it's not a personal being. You can kind of let it off the hook. But if you're going to argue for the existence of a god who is sentient and aware, uh, a, a personal creator god who intentionally made the universe then yeah, you've got a problem on your hands because how do you reconcile the idea of a God, of that kind of God, especially if you're going to insist that he's a moral and just God with all the suffering in the world? And I'm also right on the same page as Peter Singer when he brings up, and this is one of my favorite uh, things to bring up in this when this argument rears its head, and that's, the ugly doctrine of original sin. You know, when you ask a Christian, you know, why is there so much suffering in the world? Um, why is the world in the state it's in? And they'll say, well, we live in a fallen world. It's our fault, you know, <laughs> that somehow um, we're responsible for the transgression of the first two human beings, Adam and Eve, obviously, according to the uh, the narrative. And I fail to see how that makes any moral sense at all. Two people, according to the narrative, if you take it literally, two people ate the wrong kind of fruit. And now every human being down the line is to be punished and suffer because of it. Rendered mortal and afflicted with all the nasty vagaries of existence 
for a crime they themselves didn't commit. I fail to see the justice in it, and, and I think there's a reason why it doesn't really make sense or hold water logically, because to me, it's it's a myth. Um, and and uh, I'll go further and say that, to me, it kind of smacks of or has the feel of a kind of classic ancient myth that seeks to explain some phenomenon, some aspect of the natural world. You know, kind of like, what's lightning? Oh, that's Zeus's thunderbolt, or that's Thor fighting giants. Uh, <laughs> um, why does suffering exist? Oh, because, you know, two people ate the wrong kind of fruit. And I'm not trying to sound overly glib in the way I'm talking about the Adam and Eve myth or fall in the garden narrative, because um, I think it can be a very interesting myth to wrestle with and analyze, and there's a lot you can read into it, but at the end of the day, it's still just a myth and a pretty lousy explanation for human suffering. And I think there, there's something really distasteful about the way believers seem to unapologetically put this myth forward as, not only put this myth forward as an explanation for suffering, but how they also seem to use it to put the onus for suffering on our shoulders, as if we should feel guilty for some imaginary transgression that took place countless lifetimes before we were even conceived. As if to say, yes, there is a God, but suffering is your fault, not his. So not only do we have to endure the suffering of this world, but where to feel responsible for that suffering as well. But ma'am, I digressing, so let's get back to the clip. Well, not actually digressing. It was on topic, but yeah, you know, I was going off on a tangent. The fact that you can't place these moral duties and values in the framework of God is because there are there are other aspects of God that you just find can't, can't bring you well, to That's the certainly a, a major yeah. reason for yeah. me. I mean, uh, Andrew said, uh, objected to extravagant Platonism and seem mm. to imply that belief in a god um, is somehow less extravagant. We could have a debate about you know <laughs> what creates more <laughs> metaphysical extravagance, and that would be another issue that we could raise. Um, and and also, I still haven't really heard uh, Andrew's answer to the question of whether uh, God is simply you know whether the things that God says are good, uh, he, they could could have been different or not. I haven't. Mm. I know he said that something p part of the idea of goodness, but then. Well, let, let's open, mm. send this back to you, Andy, yeah, because absolutely. I think there, there's a couple of questions mm, there. There are. This, this challenge over whether, you you know, you can resolve Euthyphro's dilemma and yep. whether, whether God actually does uh, command the good and so on. But also the problem of suffering, you know, yeah. Peter says, I, I'm not, I don't, God's not even on the table as long as mm. the world we're in is, is the world that God has created because it, yeah. I can't reconcile that with a God, God of love as, as you seem to be able to. That's a. There's a lot of good things in there, but let's take that 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 latter one, Peter. Because I think that's a that's a hugely you know significant question. And of course, you know, as a as a philosopher who is you know no slouch, you'll be aware that there's a whole branch of philosophy that deals with that from a range of perspective, which is the whole branch of philosophy and theology known as as theodicy. So I think it'd be interesting to do some digging mm. into that if one's going to use that as an argument. What I what I find interesting is right from the word go that actually that brings a, a whole moral dimension to bear on the world that we live in. Because of course our instinctive reaction when well hopefully our instinctive reaction, whether it's 
kangaroos uh, dying of thirst in the centre of, uh, of Australia or whether it's you know, uh, a hurricane or whatever causing some kind of natural disaster is we don't just view it coldly and dispassionately. We actually bring the ought to bear. It ought not to be like that. The world ought to be different. And that, that oughtness, as somebody once described, is a bit like the bubble on the wallpaper. You know, you wallpaper a room and there's a bubble over here and you push it down and it, and it pops up over here. We can't seem to avoid making those, those kind of value judgments. Now, if that was all there was to say then I think, you know, if the Christian story was simply God is good and has created this world, and hey, isn't it wonderful? Then I think we'd have every duty to come along and go, well, hang on just a moment. But of course, that's not that. That's neither the beginning of the story nor the end of the story. The beginning of the story is that something has gone wrong uh, with creation. With uh, all due respect, Peter, you, you slightly mischaracterize the Christian doctrine of original sin, which is not the reason the world is in the state it's in, is because God goes, ha, oh, because of Adam and Eve, I'm just going to you know, kill those kangaroos, unless that's the Australian, <laughs> that's the AV, the Australian version. <laughs> right. um, okay, tell me what the <laughs> rather than that, that actually that's actually fundamentally twisted and broken creation both our relationship with god and, and creation but, but, itself but if god is all powerful why can't he fix it and so i think that's a great yet an obvious question <laughs> peter uh, singer asks you know if, if god is all powerful why can't he fix whatever this broken aspect of um of existence is and his opponent will go on to say that, oh, well, he did. You know, he sent Jesus down to die or whatever. And rightly, Peter Singer will go on to say, well, that doesn't seem like much of a fix. And, uh, you know, here we are centuries and centuries after um, the supposed death and resurrection of Christ. And we're still mired in suffering, etc. Um but yeah, I found something kind of off-putting about the way uh, Andy Bannister, yeah, um, he almost seemed to take this kind of dismissive or condescending approach to Peter Singer's take on original sin as if it lacked depth or it was too superficial or something. Kind of like he was saying, oh, Adam and Eve ate the wrong kind of fruit. Oh, no, no, it's more more than that. It's something, uh, you know, they transgressed and something became fundamentally twisted or broken. So, yeah, sounds like you're in agreement. Uh, both of you are basically saying that according to the narrative, the first two people screwed up and now we're all paying for it. You just have this more kind of uh, charitable or hoity-toity way of summing it up. That's, oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. I, before I get to that, I also point out, interestingly, I don't know if you're aware of, one of our most iconoclastic, iconoclastic atheist philosophers here in the UK is John Gray, mm-hmm. formerly London School of Economics. And John, either in his book uh, Heresies or in Straw Dogs, I always forget which one this is found in, talks about the doctrine of original sin and the fall and says, much as I disagree with much that Christians have said, um, he said, that's actually the one thing I think Christianity has got right. Just look around you. Human beings are a badly broken animal. Now, wealth by badly broken animal, you mean we're temporary, finite, imperfect creatures? Well, yeah, we're evolved beings who are quote-unquote, meant to stick around, you know, just long enough to help propagate the species, to pass on our genes. It would be really nice if we had evolved to be immortal and perfect, but unfortunately for us, it doesn't seem to be the way nature works. Your question about why does God allow it? Well, if God had simply sat there in heaven and done nothing about it, 
then I think we'd have, we would be able to raise that very charge of going, well, it's all right for you. You're sitting up there in heaven. Life is pretty miserable down here. But, of course, the, Christ, the whole of the Christian story is what God has and is doing about it in and through the cross and through Jesus. And whether or whatever you make of Jesus of Nazareth, certainly the heart of the Christian story, you have the ability to go, the one thing you cannot pin on the God of the Bible is this is not a God who knows something, who knows nothing about suffering and injustice. And interestingly, Justin, that brings us full circle. Because one of the things I would also want to bring to the table as a Christian about human value and dignity is that value is also conferred by what somebody is prepared to pay. And in the God of the Bible, and then the cross and in Jesus, you have God making a tremendous statement about the value of human beings such that he will be willing to go through that in the person but, of Jesus. But this, is, this is still very strange, right? Because uh, if we believe that Jesus was God's son and God sent him to earth... I most that, certainly do. Right. So that happened about 2,000 years ago, Right. Um, and yet the world still has all of this suffering. So, so here's this supposedly all-powerful being who created the universe and everything and who doesn't like the suffering that goes on and who tried to do something about it 2,000 years ago, and yet the suffering is still going on, doesn't seem to be really better. So it seems like he's a bungler. He made a bad mistake in thinking that sending his son to be crucified would somehow fix all the suffering in the world, and it plainly hasn't. Well, actually, if I was going to be wonderfully sort of cheeky, I'd go, actually, Stephen Pinker was sitting in that chair not long ago who says the world has got increasingly better uh, in the last uh, <laughs> well, couple not of years. Well, but not as – I, well, I, we I could, agree with Stephen Pinker about that, but why. not as much better as it ought to we have got if we why. had an all-powerful but I think the Christ, being. But here's the interesting thing. That answer, I think – that question, of course, is raised right from the very, very beginning because the, the first Christians who went out across the Roman world and began preaching uh, the Christian message and saw Christians go from being 0.0008% of the Roman Empire to 51.2% in 312 years, they knew full well that Christians were thrown to the lions, that earthquakes happened, that disease happened, yet they still believed that God had come in the person of Jesus, risen from the dead, that that was the death blow struck to evil, and that was the beginning of God's new creation okay, and putting so the world back together again. Fo- a strange false belief, I think. Yeah, so I took issue with what Andy Bannister said there, too. In a way, he seems to be trying to put forward as evidence that Christianity must be true. The kind of, uh, there's my chihuahua snoring in the background, the zeal, you know, of the first Christians, or maybe I should say the early Christians. It gets a little confusing because in its infancy, what would become Christianity was or is referred to by scholars as the Jesus Movement. The name Christianity didn't exist yet. The very first Christians uh, were Jewish. This was a Jewish movement. They believed in Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. And then this so-called Jesus Movement moves into the Greco-Roman world, and more and more it gets adopted by Gentiles. But either way, you know, the the early Christians were people who believed that Jesus' return was imminent. It, It was close at hand. And I imagine this fed into their religious fervor. There's been a lot of people throughout history, true believers, who have done extreme things in the name of their faith. In the case of the early Christians, uh, as I think Andy Bannister was alluding to, there's all the cases of martyrdom, etc. And in a less inspirational kind of light, you know, we we can look at recent, relatively recent cases of uh, cult behavior. Um, Think of Jonestown, 
Heaven's Gate or, uh, you know, Suicide Bombers or whatever. Um, so I don't necessarily think that the zeal of a movement or belief system's adherence should be taken as good evidence of the validity or truth of the tenets of that um, that belief system. Well, interesting you say false belief. One of the things that intrigues me about the suffering question as well, and to go, this is a, this, this is a rabbit trail of, of, it, of its own, but I think it's a fascinating one. One of the things that began to intrigue me as I taught you know, university-level courses on the, on the problem of evil was it's a peculiarly Western question. It's not, that doesn't make, it doesn't make it an irrelevant question, but when I would travel to the East, and I have many, many friends who are living in situations where they've experienced terrific suffering, persecution, I've met people who have lost their homes, their families, who've been tortured in prison for their Christian faith or experience other things, um, these questions don't arise. It was pointed out after the tsunami, the Asian tsunami, it was Western newspapers that were running editorials with, where is God? That question wasn't being asked. But because they don't really believe in that God that we believe, the well, personal Christi- God. Well, Christians yeah. caught up in it would, 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 that would have oh, been Christians would have Muslims been, right, right. would have done. Those questions were not, were not being asked. And that just tells me something. I think it tells me that whilst this is not an unimportant question, we forget that we all ask our question from a, from a position. We approach our philosophy from a position. And we're approaching this as Westerners. He sounds like he thinks he's making some kind of gotcha point but I don't know what it is necessarily. Sounds like he's stating the obvious. In parts of the world where people might not necessarily believe in a personal God, you're going to find less instances of people saying, where was God <laughs> you know? uh, when all this went down? Duh, no kidding. And I think there is something when you draw that lens back. Similarly, historically, to go, if the problem of evil was such a spectacular argument against belief in a good God, then I think as the Oxford professor C.S. Lewis famously asked, how did that belief ever arise in the first place? Men are crazy, but not as, not as crazy as that. And so I think this is another flawed argument from Andy Bannister. He's asking if the belief in a good God is so hard to reconcile with suffering, how did the belief in a good God arise in the first place? And to me, you know, beliefs aren't always logically consistent. And this might sound like a strange thing for an atheist or technically agnostic atheist to say, but I do think it's natural in a way for people to believe or to want to believe in a higher power. I think there's something ingrained in the human psyche where we're kind of primed to believe in some kind of agency. So it's almost natural, I think, for people to say, oh, there must be something bigger above us. There must be some force behind it all pulling the strings. And then I think it's probably in keeping with human nature to want to honor that higher power. That's the big kahuna in the sky, man. You do not want to mess with that. You know, keep your nose clean. Um, and so you treat it with reverence. So maybe in a sense, in the old use of the word, God is terrible, you know, awesome and frightening. But also, God is good, and you're to give thanks to him. 
But then you also, and so this is kind of natural stuff to believe in a sense. I think human beings want to believe in agency, but then you're left to try at the same time. There's that cognitive dissonance and you have to try to reconcile the suffering in the world and the vagaries of existence with the belief in this higher power. And then maybe, you know, you have to end up coming up with stories like the fall in the garden and, uh, it wasn't God. It's not God's fault. It's it's our us lowly humans. It's our fault. So I think we need to wrestle with the question. But I think it's actually a question for both atheists and for Christians to wrestle with because it gets us to the issue. I don't see why it's a question for atheists. I mean, we we understand the world as having evolved from. Uh, very simple beings that were not conscious. There's no plan to the world for an atheist evolutionary viewpoint. It's just happened through random mutations. Um, and unfortunately, you know, if you like, it's indifferent as to whether it causes suffering or not in terms of, mm. of how things evolve. Uh, so I don't see why it's at all a problem for okay. atheists that there well, is Well, let me explain why. I think if atheists were simply content to leave it there, that would be one thing. But the fact that when, uh, that when uh, natural disasters happen, we find atheists quick to use but, moral but, language. Why should, of course, and I've never denied that we should use moral language. So where does, the, fact, where we, does the oughtness come from? It's just evolution doing her thing or his thing no, or No, it's not thing. at all. Not at all. That would be the naturalistic fallacy. And that's why I said to Justin before, I'm, I'm not a naturalist. So I'm not trying to be cruel or mean-spirited towards Andy Bannister, although, I mean, either way, he's probably never going to hear this. So uh, why not let it rip? But, but um, I'm not too impressed with his arguments. Uh, once again, I think that's another very flawed argument. Now he's falling back on that old chestnut. Um, if there is no God or you don't believe in God, where's your morality come from, you know? Um, where's that oughtness come from? Yeah, so I think you know, we're evolved beings, uh, social animals, who have in our nature both a capacity for altruism and compassion, group solidarity, all that good stuff. And let's not sure co things too much. As I've often said in the show, we also have a capacity for tribalism and violence in group out-group stuff. But as social animals, once again, we do have this capacity for compassion and altruism uh, and empathy. So it makes sense that when we see footage of or hear about uh, people, children being wiped out in natural disasters or awful things happening to other people or even uh, other things happening to members of other species. I'm one of those people who always talks about how, uh, rightly or wrongly, I seem to be more more easily bothered um, when I hear about awful things happening to animals uh, or whatever. But what that says about me, whatever, you know. Um it, it, so it makes sense that we would feel for other beings and be concerned for other beings. Um, we're social animals with the, uh, with the capacity for empathy, the ability to imagine ourselves in another being's shoes and how awful that would be, you know, and to, to feel for them. You don't need anything spooky or supernatural to explain that. Um, no, it's that we can understand as rational beings that gratuitous suffering is a bad thing and that for beings to experience joy and pleasure and happiness is a good thing. And uh, moral language follows from that. So I don't think there's any problem for an atheist in, in using moral language. Um, and uh, I think that problem, the, the, the problem of suffering is therefore uniquely a problem for those who believe in a God who has these 
three attributes of omniscience, mm. uh, um, omnipotence, and omnibenevolence or, or goodness. Well, let me bring it back to not the, the issue of it not being a problem, Peter. You, uh, you wrote, sorry, I was just digging on my iPad because I thought I actually wanted to read you something. You said, uh, far from justifying principles that are shown to be natural, a biological explanation can be a way of debunking what seem to be eternal moral axioms. When a widely accepted moral principle is given a convincing biological explanation, we need to think again about whether we should accept the principle. And yes, another, that's right. And so debunking another, explanation. That means we don't support the value that we might hold because yeah. it helped us to survive and reproduce. The, the fact that a value helped us to survive and reproduce doesn't prove that it's false, but should lead us to a certain scepticism. Exactly. And in the same way that our instinctive reaction to when we see suffering in nature is, all oh, that's a terrible thing, we could debunk the same thing. In fact, A.J. Ayers, I think it was who famously said, uh, the debunker should be forced to wave his own debunking sword over his own cherished beliefs in public. And so I think, actually, evolution, when you apply it that way, becomes a universal acid. I, I don't think it does. And I've argued, in fact, in a I know book called, called The Point of View of the Universe, that... Um, the idea of universal benevolence, the idea that, um, as the late 19th century utilitarian philosopher Henry Sidgwick said, from the point of view of the universe, the interests of uh, each being can't the same if they're similar sorts of interests. Um, that's something that you cannot explain in evolutionary terms, why we should hold that belief, because it actually would be more advantageous to our survival mm. and reproduction if we said, no, beings who are not any kin of mine or not in a reciprocal relationship with me, their interests don't count. Um, and, of course, a lot of people do actually act on that, and it's not surprising given that we are evolved beings who descended from ancestors who succeeded in reproducing. It's not surprising that we should have tendencies to act on that. And when you referred to the idea of, of human nature as being broken, I think... It's simply uh, something that we can understand in evolutionary terms, why we do not act with universal benevolence to all. All right. But I don't think I have anything more to add. Uh, there was a very interesting conversation. So if you're interested in hearing that whole debate or conversation, check out uh, Justin Brierley's unbelievable podcast. Uh, you can probably find a video version on YouTube or you can get it on uh, iTunes. And like uh, many of my friends, um, I have uh, kind of mixed feelings about Justin Brierley, but I think it, at least he does provide a kind of service by offering a platform where theists and atheists can have these kind of um, honest back and forths or debates or dialogues. Um, so, but with that being said, wow, we're like 50 minutes in. And I know I said I wanted to play a David Pakman clip or at least discuss a topic David Pakman had brought up about a, uh, a, a study that suggested that, quote unquote, no religion is the fastest growing religion in the U.S., but man, I am wiped and this has already been a long episode, so maybe I'll, I'll get to that um, in, an, in another episode coming up. I, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't want to make a liar out of myself by promising. So uh, you guys know the drill. You can like the show on Facebook. Uh, you can follow the show on Twitter. You can check out the, the show on YouTube. Maybe you're doing that now. If you want to help the show out monetarily, you can use the PayPal widget at the bottom of the Podbean page, 
or you can go to patreon.com slash theweekinddoubt and help the show out for as little as 99 cents a month. Um, and also, I haven't plugged this in a while, but you can also leave an iTunes review for the show and I will read it on the air. All right. So uh, thank you, brothers and sisters, as always, and until next time. And oh yeah, this music I've been playing the last couple of episodes is actually the song Light by KMFDM. This kind of uh, heavy metal slash electronic dance music fusion type of uh, group from, um, from Germany. But I, I love KMFDM, and I, I want to give them a, uh, a little shout-out if I'm going to use their music. This isn't going to be an ongoing thing. I just had the, uh, the, fi- the music file for uh, their song Light hanging around. It's one of my favorite tunes. So um, there's that. Okay, I'm going to bed now. Later. <laughs>